Hello, my fellow wannabe skin specialist. Ugh, ew. The following presentation is intended only for immature audiences. And God said, let there be F-bombs. And they were good. And they multiplied. Right here in this podcast. me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been more than two months since my last episode. Of all the worst possible things! Hey there, all you wild and crazy fairy tale lovers. Welcome back to the Hansel and Gretel Code. Oh, you back again? Uh, yep. This here is episode 18. I hope this is worth it. In our last episode, we got a whole lot more specific about the concept of conscience, and we discovered that even a good conscience can be responsible for unconscionable acts. (laughs) You might want to change your toothbrush. And uh, that's why we can say that despite urging and nagging her husband to do something bad, Frau Holzacker, she actually symbolizes a good, old-fashioned, ultra-conservative, Santa-Claus-is-coming-to-town conscience. You know, that character with the halo who's always sitting there on your right shoulder, whispering words of divine encouragement. Until push comes to shove, when she turns into a sadistic drill sergeant, demanding blind faith to God, country, and mom's gingerbread, or, I mean, apple pie. You little scumbag! I got your name! I got your ass! You will not laugh! You will not cry! You will learn by the numbers! I will teach you! Now get up! Get on your feet! Oh, and I suppose you think that's funny, huh? Of course, it might seem that her behavior makes her the exact opposite of a conscience. And you know what I mean. That bad boy of legitimate, unorthodox doubts, who's uh, usually dressed in red and sits on your left shoulder, the side that's known in Latin as sinister. (laughs) And uh, just so you know, whatever he's whispering, conscience is bound to tell you that it's all just a bunch of lies that are evil as hell. But they can make anything bad because they are the fake, fake, disgusting news. Well, I guess conscience sometimes shouts. Arg-y-derg-a-derg. Well, in this episode, we're going to do our best to clear up the issue of Frau Holzacker as conscience by doing something uh, pretty peculiar. What's that? 
Well, some of us are going to go off and sneak into a carnival sideshow to see the bearded lady. And then we're going to go get some... Spaghetti. Uh, that sounds good, but uh, no. We're going to go pluck some flowers from a bunch of different gardens so we can put together a bucket of flowers. It's bouquet, Vika. Uh, yeah, a literary bucket. It's bouquet. A bouquet known as a florilegia. Ooh, well, isn't it just Mr. Fancy Words? Hey, you know what? Fuck it. Let's just make that a little podcast dead poet poetry slam. Huh? My name is Mark Smith. So what? So, just to bring you back up to speed on where we are in the story, let's take another listen to it up to the sentence that we're currently dealing with. Once upon a time, there was a poor woodcutter who lived before a great forest. He had it so rough, he could scarcely feed his wife and his two children. Once, there wasn't even any more bread. And he was terrified. Aww. So one night in bed, his wife said to him, Early tomorrow, take both children into the woods. Give them what's left of the bread, make them a big fire, and then go off and leave them alone. Oh, for a long time, the man refused. But the woman gave him no peace until he finally said, Well, all right. Anything you want. Anything. Part 1 Teil 1 In which we join a mob Walk through some celebrity's split-level house and then finally get to see the bearded lady up close and personal. I'm going to need you to step back a minute. Well, if there's one thing we know about conscience, at least according to psychologists and psychiatrists, it's that there are plenty of people running around out there who just don't have one. What? That's right. And those people without a conscience... They're called... Politicians. Yeah, very nice. Uh, well, them too. What I meant, though, was sociopaths and psychopaths. Good evening, Clarice. Oof. For the rest of us, conscience may sometimes be a blessing and sometimes a curse, but uh, there's no getting rid of it. It's always there, sitting on one shoulder. And it's not just some angel whispering into one of our ears. According to the modern philosopher Hannah Arendt, it's the voice of God. And according to Isaiah 40, it's a voice crying out to us from the wilderness. And what that voice said in Isaiah it makes it the great homogenizer. Ooh, uh, by the way must have been shouting into the ear of that master builder of highways, parkways, and expressways you may or may not be familiar with. Who's that? Robert Moses. 
the man who is more than likely to have been responsible for 45's ambition to become president. Are you kidding me? I kid you not. Anyway, you do remember that biblical passage I quoted in episode 17, right? No. Well, doesn't matter. There's no forgetting conscience. We can't lose it, and we can't hide from it. But we can sometimes manage to find ourselves temporarily out of earshot. How? Well, one way to do that is to join a mob. Taco Bell. Or Wendy's. Uh, no. Not that kind of mob. Funny thing is, though... Funny how? Like I'm, like I'm clowning here? I'm to amuse you or what? Um, uh, see, you actually do have to be a sociopath in order to make it as a mobster. And that's because there's no way to move up the ladder in that, uh, profession. Not if you have an actual conscience, that is. Killing to me is like taking out the garbage. I don't like doing it, but it's got to be done. Of course. Well, forget that mob. What I'm talking about is the kind of mob the rest of us civilians sometimes join. The kind of ad hoc, temporary mob you sometimes hear about in the news. You know, something like a lynch mob. What? I mean, uh, just imagine. There you are, standing around, minding your own business, when some pushy bunch of hotheads comes along, and they got microphones and bullhorns, and they're getting everyone all worked up and carried away, so that now, there's no more me and no more you. It's all us and we. And suddenly, we are right in the middle of a frenzied us-versus-them confrontational situation. And that's when we find ourselves joining in on the, uh, fun. We start chanting and demanding some stupid something or other. And then before you know it, we're all doing stuff that later on, our conscience, or maybe just the law, was likely to give us a really hard time about. So, let's have trial by combat. All of us here today do not want to see... Argie derg derg. Of course, there's the much, much, much more common scenario when our conscience falls on temporarily deaf ears. Which, for some of us, I gotta admit, happens uh, pretty regularly. What? Yeah, well, at least for me, it's pretty much every day. Somewhere around uh, five o'clock. Uh, you know... Mm-hmm, yes. I must say, the wine is quite delightful. <laughs> Aren't you drinking? I never drink. Why? <clears throat> hey, like it or not, we all need a conscience. Aw, why? Well, for one thing... It helps keep a lid on all sorts of potentially dangerous, ugly, or just plain old stupid instincts and habits. Uh, why is he wearing a lampshade? See, there's no question that conscience is a necessary and valuable tool of culture and civilization. 
without the rational, civilized boundaries that conscience is meant to enforce? There's only unconscious, drunken frenzy, or some cold and calculated sociopathic invasion. We'd all go berserk and not only cross our neighbors' boundaries and destroy their peace and quiet and security, we'd destroy civilization. Shit happens. Oh, brother. So, conscience is not just some kind of white picket fence separating right from wrong. Conscience is also a rock of Gibraltar, providing a stable and secure reference point that supports and promotes community, not to mention individual character and responsibility. So, uh, it's not nice to question conscience. Amen. And yet, what happens when that same rock of Gibraltar becomes a stumbling block? An unfeeling, immovable object that ruthlessly trips us up if we ever dare to deviate from the straight and narrow path? The kind of path that, at best, can only lead us to some bland and homogenized version of truth sanctioned by the prevailing culture and its utterly partisan authorities. And without a judicious touch of intoxicating freedom, we'd have nothing but a dry, cultured police mentality. Some dogmatic fascist orthodoxy, where the laws and dogma leave no room for individual expression or interpretation. And in that case, the boundaries of conscience, they become chains and bars, and conscience itself hardens into a Procrustean absolute. Just relax. Oh, for goodness sakes, how can we possibly hope to reach our own unique and vibrant truth when conscience forbids it? I don't know. Well, sure enough, this fairy tale is going to show us exactly how to do just that. And along the way, we're going to see conscience doing its level best to bar the door to our innermost individual truth. Right now, things are bad enough, though, because the fairy tale is showing us how conscience will sometimes demand that we sacrifice the very things we should be holding most dear. Just as it did when it demanded that Abraham barbecue his son Isaac. Yikes! And of course, when the equivalent of that happens to us in real-life terms, as it sometimes does, Unless we're automatons, we find ourselves caught up in the terribly human predicament of becoming a house divided. An unpleasant state of affairs that happens so often, one of our Holzhacker's most famous ancestors was actually quoted on the subject. You know, Mark chapter 3, verses 24 to 27. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. This is relevant to my interests. So. Here we have Mr. Nice Guy, 
our humble and pious Herr Holzacker, living a sincere and deliberate life, which, uh, I gotta say, must be pretty good for his conscience. And yet, as we all know, that deliberate life of his is now complicated by severe difficulties outside of his control. Shit happens. And then, being no automaton, he's not only plagued by doubts, his conscience is giving him so much grief, he's become that same biblical house divided. Not good. Yeah, I'll say. So now there's a famine that scares the bejesus out of him. And while he sincerely wants to do something to prevent starvation, not just for himself, but for his whole family, the guy uh, just can't seem to stick to his guns and keep his family together. Not after all the constant nagging of a bad conscience, not to mention the stereotypical difficulties of a bad marriage. All you ever do is sit around and play video games and jack off, okay? What about me? What about me? I'm not saying nothing. Now, it might not seem logical that Conscience should want this whole Tucker house to fall or be plundered. Think about it, though. If we're right about the metaphor, it really is his conscience that's got him all tied up in knots. Of course, by finally giving in to his conscience, he might even figure that he's got his shit together. Indubitably. As Professor Boswell told us in episode 17, maybe uh, he figures his abandoned kids will become foundlings and be raised by some other well-meaning, better-off couple. Most assuredly. Yeah, well, unfortunately for him and his kids, we already know that conscience, freed from the humanist burden of empathy, really is trying to plunder his house of half its assets not only for the sake of its own survival, but specifically to feed those two assets, the Holzhacker kids, to the witch. In other words, to Frau Holzhacker's shadow. Oh no. Ooh, Jungian alert. For those of you who detest the idea of Jung and his theories, or consider him a kind of carnival sideshow act, please skip ahead eh, about four and a half minutes and meet me at the beginning of part two, the next section. Okay? Really? Yeah, you won't be missing anything you'd want to see or hear or know about. Got that right. Um, mock or disparage Jung all you want. The rest of us intuitives... We're going to indulge in a simple Jungian trope by taking a quick peek at the bearded lady. Yowza! Woo! So, step right up and imagine our gingerbread witch, the real Satan of this story, to be Frau Holzhacker's shadow, living as it does in the forest of the unconscious. Now remember, we already spoke about this back in episode 15. Oh yeah, affirmative. Oh, what do you know? I guess that one guy actually did decide to skip ahead. I just uh, wonder if we've lost him completely. Well, 
This may not be all that important, but the fact that the mother's demise happens in mysteriously unexplained circumstances, it only strengthens our contention that the witch is her shadow. Now, the concept of the shadow should make it obvious, to Jungians at least, why the two characters, the mother and the witch, have been said to be somehow linked in many of the psychologically-minded interpretations of the tale. None of which, though, seem to make the obvious connection via Jung's concept of the shadow. Now, shadow, of course, is a same-sex concept. According to Jung, women have a female shadow, and men have a male shadow. At least that's how they appear in dreams. But uh, taking a different, more complex Jungian step further, just imagine, if you will, that our witch is not the woman's shadow, but instead is her animus. In other words, her opposite gender archetype. And that makes the woman an animus-possessed character, or bearded lady, if you will who's thus acting out a problematic but uh, terribly mundane complex in her own psyche. What the fuck does that mean? Well, being an anonymous-possessed woman, that means someone who's unconsciously acting out her more young and aggressive traits. The important part of that description being the word unconsciously. In other words, not deliberately or by conscious choice. The gender-opposite equivalent of animus possession, it's a man who is anima-possessed. In other words, a guy unconsciously acting out his more yin and receptive traits, either by being passive-aggressive, or worse, and much more disastrously, by using his muscular strength to act out and vent his raging emotions, all at someone else's expense meaning, most commonly, at a woman's expense. But there are also guys who like to act out with other men. I've even heard it said by one such guy, he'd rather fight than fuck. No way. Well, this lesser-known Jungian concept, it not only explains the why behind Frau Holzhacker's insistence on sacrificing her own two children, which is because it feeds her unconscious complex. But it's also consistent with the sort of Punch and Judy scenario engendered by her incessant nagging. That is, she's trying her damnness to be the one who wears the pants in the family. Uh, <laughs> interesting. Okay, let's get back to the podcast and find the others. Sounds good to me, Curtis. I've punched the coordinates into your phone, so you just have to follow your GPS. Part 2 Teil 2 In which we inspect the Vatican's nuclear arsenal, throw around some Mardi Gras beads, and run into the big Catch-22 of Western culture. The fuck is this? I am confused. Now, if you remember from episode four... No. Oh, I guess we found the others, all right. Anyway, back in episode four, 
we talked about how our Holzhacker was able to hear and obey that still small voice within. The very thing that led him to his vocation. In other words, the voice that was calling him to his calling. Hello? Is there somebody there? Of course, becoming a woodcutter that didn't make him a rich man. Not in terms of cash flow. Quite the opposite, in fact. But it did make him rich in ways that really count. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, that calm, quiet voice, it not only led him to be in tune with his environment, it put him at peace with himself. Um, <sighs> yeah. And that's what makes the ability to hear that still, small voice of the heart, coupled with the courage to follow it, so very, very valuable. Now, as far as I can tell, it also should have made him full of grace. Although for some reason, grace, in its metaphoric guise as bread, was never abundant in the life of our whole talker. And on top of that, something drastic happened. Something abruptly shut off, what really should have been a natural and modest, if not abundant, flow of grace. What happens? As we all know, our story has represented that grace-blocking something as a famine. For us intuitives, though, it's obvious that the Hansel and Gretel famine, it's more than just a literal reference to the Great Famine of 1315. It, too, is a metaphor for something else. And remember, just as all metaphors say A is B, this one says that our fairy tale famine is something else entirely. And what that something else is has remained hidden from everyone but us for the last 150 years or so. You and I now know that the famine represents the mother of all ecclesiastical sanctions, the papal nuclear weapon known as interdiction. Interdiction was a sanction that popes loved to impose on their most powerful enemies. In the Middle Ages, a papal interdiction was a terrifying, inhumane weapon that caused awful collateral damage to the innocent peasants who were beholden to those papal enemies. Interdiction, of course, was a virtual siege. It meant that all such innocent peasants were completely cut off from divine grace, meaning the sacraments and the word of God, as preached by papal minions. And the interdiction would go on for as long as the Pope deemed it necessary to get his political demands met. Wow. Asshole. So if our intuitive suppositions are correct, this fairy tale is telling us that the food and daily bread that's gone missing from the woodcutter table? Well, that's a metaphor for the soul food of divine grace that has gone missing. And while a famine can be properly considered an act of God, a papal interdiction it was a spiteful act of Vatican oligarchy. Don't, don't say that! 
Yeah, well, the sudden fairy tale lack of food, it's such an apt and clever metaphor for the sudden and historic lack of grace that those all too frequent papal interdictions imposed. Don't you think? No, sir. Well, eventually, we're going to prove that this fairy tale famine has much more to do with the Vatican and the wanton cruelty of popes and papal interdictions than it does with the literal Great Famine of 1315. This is repetitive. Yeah, yeah, I know. I just want to emphasize that grace, it's an awfully desirable thing to have. No matter who we are, what our profession, or even what religion we follow, we all need grace. Why, 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 why? Okay, so unlike food, grace isn't essential for sustaining life. As we said in episode 12, it's soul food, the very thing we need for the survival and growth of our spirit. In other words, it's essential for keeping us at peace with ourselves, with our neighbors, and with our environment. In fact, it's the very thing that brings us true happiness, even in our own zeitgeist. What are you talking about? Uh, well, what's important here is that we still need to learn what grace actually is. What it means to us in our own postmodern zeitgeist. We can't just leave it as some ethereal religious abstraction and think we got it covered. Why the fuck not? Hey, this is important. Because we normally allow the concept of grace to just kind of hover there in the ether without knowing exactly what the hell it is. Fact is, we all throw around that concept like Mardi Gras beads, and we do it at the drop of a hat. I don't think so. Oh yeah, we do. See, there's that colloquially mundane saying we're always ready to throw out at people when they sneeze, right? I don't know what you're talking about. Well, at least in English. And I'm sure you've heard somebody say, God bless you, in gratitude. For some act of genuine kindness and charity. No, sir. Oh, and uh, forget about hearing the word blessing said in the context of religion or religious ceremony. Yeah, so what? A blessing is supposed to be a gift of grace, right? So how should I know? Who even cares? Well, I care. And so did the author of this fairy tale. Together... You and I are going to take the gift wrapping off that black box of grace and open it up so we can see and feel and touch and finally know exactly what it really is. That's awesome. Now, the amazing thing is, all we need is a little tiny taste of the stuff just to get by. Now, the problem is, we need a daily supply of it in order to live in the real McCoy state of happily ever after. A genuine state of true happiness that fairy tales, and most religions, only beguile or practically taunt us with. Yes, yes, this is the most important part. Now the Greeks had a word for this true happiness business. They called it... Pizza. Uh, no. They called it Eudaimonia. What is that? 
Oh, that's a great question, having one hell of a lot of different answers. All depending on which philosopher really speaks to you, and in the language most agreeable to your personal typology and personality. There's Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, not to mention Kant, ah! Fichte, Nay! and Hegel. Oh, very nice. Much better. And then there are the Epicureans and the Stoics, the Cynics and the Skeptics. And the list goes on and on and on. It even carries into our own day and age in modern philosophy and psychology. Blah, 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 complicated. Ooh, it really is complicated to explain. So forget about it. We're not going to get into the particulars. I'll leave a link to the wiki article in the transcripts so you can see for yourself how all the various explanations do nothing but complicate the issue. Oh, no. For now, all you need to know is that eudaimonia, well, that means true fucking happiness. Ooh, I like that. So, uh, getting back to Grace... We've got something of a catch-22 here. Oh, crap. Yeah, sorry to say, we need a good supply of grace to find true happiness or eudaimonia. And we need true happiness or eudaimonia to bring us real grace. That's some cancer, catch-22! It's the best there is! And because of that catch-22... We've got more questions than answers. Starting with that question we just mentioned. What do we really mean by grace? Actually, not what do we mean by it, but exactly what the hell is it? Not to mention where and how we can find a real deal, all-you-can-eat, soul food buffet of this stuff. I want my pizza right now. I am very hungry. Well, I can tell you that Hansel and Gretel is going to give us the answer to all those questions. Hooray! For any answer to make sense, though, the first thing we got to do is deal with the metaphoric identity of Frau Holzhacker as the voice of conscience. Must we? Uh, Afraid so. It's because it goes against what seems to be common sense. I mean, haven't we been taught that a good conscience is supposed to bring us peace, happiness, and the equivalent of eudaimonia? Not to mention grace. So, if she really represents conscience, how does giving in to all her nagging bring Herr Holzhacker any grace? Aren't good Catholics, which uh, we assume are woodcutter, like the majority of medieval pre-Reformation Germans was, aren't they taught to trust and believe that grace, the very thing that brings true happiness, comes only from following the dictates of conscience and staying on the good side of your spouse, or, I mean, your God? And for Catholics, doesn't a good conscience require staying in the good graces of the Pope? Because the Pope as the self-styled vicar of Christ on earth, not to mention the uh, embodiment of Holy Mother, the Church. Uh, 
Isn't he supposed to be the infallible mouthpiece of God, and therefore of conscience? Because uh, conscience, as Hannah Arendt said, is supposed to be the voice of God. So is Frau Holzacker supposed to be a metaphor for the voice of God? Or maybe more cogently, could she be a metaphor for the mouthpiece of God and conscience? The one uh, residing in the Vatican? And if so, wouldn't it mean that Herr Holzacker's capitulation to his wife's plan puts him back in the good graces of the Pope? Are you crazy? Well, I don't mean to get you all confused here, but this sure sounds like another Catch-22. Now, I personally don't much care for anything the popes have to say, but I do have a conscience. In fact, one that sometimes sounds just like Frau Holzacker. Damn you! Fortunately, I've also heard that still, small voice of the heart, at least occasionally. And it sounds absolutely nothing like Frau Holzacker. So here's the crux of the matter. Could conscience really be the same thing as the still, small voice of the heart? Well, I... I don't know. Well, in order to find out, I think we have to go out into the field of poetry and start gathering a little bucket of flowers. It's bouquet, B-U-C- Oh yeah, that, that's right. Forget the flowers. We're going to have an honest-to-goodness, dead poet, podcast poetry slam. This is gonna suck. So, uh, this isn't the Green Mill in Chicago. But, uh, now you can belly up to the bar and help support the podcast by buying me a cup of coffee. Or a beer. Or maybe even a schnapps or two. And don't push your luck. I'll leave a link. Because I sure could use the grace of your support. Emotional and otherwise. Don't bother me. Can't you see I'm busy? Part 3 Teil 3 in which we hold our first Dead Poet Podcast Poetry Slam. And then listen in as a couple of guys in the outfit get an assignment from the big boss. I don't give a rat's ass whose fault it was. I want somebody's head, and I want it now. Ooh, alrighty then. Here's our first contestant. His name is William Cowper, and he's been dead for over 200 years. But uh, like a lot of our contestants, he really wanted to come back and participate in this podcast. So let's give Bill a nice, warm welcome. Still small voice is wanted. Well, that was short and uh, sweet. Hmm. At least it was straight to the point. 
And even though it's a little too ephemeral, I'd agree with you wholeheartedly. Except, uh, Bill, I know that you were actually equating the still small voice of the heart with conscience. And while I'll grant you your poetic license, you really don't give us any evidence to support that particular claim. The nerve! What's he doing? Well, he'd better not do something like that again. Uh, what's that? Oh, you got another line from that same poem? Alrighty then, have at it. Grace makes the slave a free man. Oh, uh, nice. So you're saying that grace is the very reason and reward for listening to the still small voice? I like it. And once again, uh, I agree wholeheartedly. There's uh, just one thing. You're still going with the common assumption that the still small voice and conscience are one and the same thing. So uh, here's the thing. If Frau Holzhacker is both conscience and the still small voice, do you really think listening to her will bring Grace back to Herr Holzhacker and his family? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, well, uh, moving right along. Our next contestant is an old favorite here. And just like Bill Cowper, he too has been dead for nearly 200 years. But uh, as he told me before the show, he just had to come back because he loves this podcast. Well, we love him too. So let's hear it for Mr. Mad, Bad, and Dangerous to Know, George Gordon Byron. Welcome back, Georgie. Yay. So, uh, George, in our last episode, you gave us your satiric take on conscience in your comical poem about Don Juan. And uh, you had us all in stitches. So why don't you go ahead and hit us with that number once again? But whether Julia to the task was equal is that which must be mentioned in the sequel. Her plan she deemed both innocent and feasible, and surely with a stripling of sixteen not scandal's fangs could fix on much that's seizable, or if they did so, satisfied to me nothing but what was good. Her breast was peaceable, a quiet conscience makes one so serene. Christians have burnt each other, quite persuaded that all the apostles would have done as they did. That is so, that is so funny. <laughs> yeah, pretty straightforward sarcasm, right? Well, tonight, Georgie's got a different poem for us called The Island. Okay, George, let's hear it. Yet still there whispers the small voice within, Heard through gain's silence and o'er glory's din. Whatever creed be taught or land be trod, Man's conscience is the oracle of God. The launch is crowded with the faithful few Who wait their chief, a melancholy crew. Well, George, that sounds like you've contradicted your last poem. Because I think you're doing exactly what Bill Cowper did. The both of you are conflating conscience with the still small voice. 
Affirmative. Well, thanks anyway, Byron, old buddy. Thanks for coming back, and we look forward to seeing you in the future. So, uh, I don't know. What do you guys think? Was Byron really just as conflicted and confused as Herr Holzacker about the difference between his conscience and the still small voice? No. Not so sure. Well, what are we supposed to think when bold, brash Byron rehearses a naive Sunday school version of the still small voice? Is conscience really something so utterly sacred, infallible, and beyond reproach? Yep. And uh, once again, is it really the same thing as the still small voice? Yes. If it is, we'd better go back to the drawing board and come up with a different metaphoric interpretation of Frau Holzacker. Oh, that's not good. In that case, seeing her as the voice of conscience, that would just make no sense. In acting like a devil, how could she possibly be both the nagging and unempathic mouthpiece of God and the empathic, still, small voice? Who cares? See, I think we have a right, maybe even a duty, to find out for certain if there's a difference between conscience and the still small voice. And if there is, what that difference might actually be. All right, if you insist. We've already heard conscience called the voice crying out in the wilderness. And we've heard it call for an enormous highway construction project meant to put us on the straight and narrow and get us all going in the same direction. And then we saw how it was confusingly co-opted by dogma in that Abraham and Isaac barbecue affair. You remember that, don't you? No. Well, after demanding blind obedience by ordering Abraham to barbecue his own son, Abe finally comes to his senses but only after something tells him to change the menu and substitute mutton for boy. And I gotta tell you, the way that story is written, I'd no more expect Big Daddy Yave to give up his taste for boy than Big Daddy Putin to give up his taste for the Ukraine. As long as there are two people on the planet left, someone cheat is going to get slipped. Oh, brother. Hey, calling conscience the still small voice, it might sound poetically correct. It might even be dogmatically correct. But my intuition says, uh, not so fast. Okay, now what? All right, let's try a different approach. Let's see if we can't figure out exactly what that still small voice is. Let's take a look at that mouth. Say ah. <coughs> okay, so what actually was the origin of the phrase, the still small voice? Well, I don't know. Well, it turns out that the Old Testament story of Elijah in 1 Kings 19, that's pretty much considered the source of the idea even if in some translations, instead of a voice, 
It's more of a Simon and Garfunkel-y sound of silence. So let's listen to the crucial moment in Elijah's story when the Lord says to him, Go out and stand on a mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. Good evening. I've been expecting you. So here we have the voice of the Lord, which is always presumed to be conscience. And now it's being called a still small voice. And this time, instead of bringing along a highway construction crew, it arrives amid all sorts of seismic and meteorologic activity, which uh, I suppose makes both voices sound awfully similar. But uh, I gotta say, there's still no sign of empathy entering the picture. In fact, the backstory to this voice? It's that Elijah's been complaining to the Lord about Jezebel and what she's been up to, and how she's been mistreating his people. That's not good. And while the Lord aims to free up Elijah's people, what he's saying is awfully peculiar, if not somehow vaguely familiar. So uh, let's listen to the next part of that Bible story. The important part comes uh, just three verses after all that Sturm und Drang earthquake business. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mahola, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Capiche? Now, uh, I don't know about you, but this don't sound too much like some uplifting passage you'd want to read to the kids in Sunday school. Sounds more to me like some secret plan on the part of the Chicago outfit for, uh, going to the mattresses. Uh? You know, like Damascus could be code for Park Ridge. Syria could be code for uh, Skokie. And Israel? That could be code for, uh, like, uh, Berwin. Berwin? <clears throat> Are we really supposed to believe that our own still, small voice of the heart can sometimes be void of empathy? Or worse, be the voice of a mafioso? What the fuck? Clearly, or maybe not so clearly, there's gotta be a difference between this ruthless, biblical voice and the empathic one, 
that was trying to keep Herr Holzacker true to his heart and to his kids. And whatever that intuitive difference is, it's the very thing that distinguishes the still small voice from conscience. And yet dogma stubbornly insists that the two are always one and the same. That shit is fucked up. So, uh, where the hell did that idea come from? I don't think you know. Well, I've got to tell you, it seems to have arisen in another one of those goofy, philologic mistranslations from Greek to Latin to English, just like the one we came across in episode 10. Remember? No. Yeah, I didn't think so. Well, before we clear up that mystery, let's at least try to figure out what this thing is we're referring to when we use the word conscience. What do we actually mean by conscience? Yeah. What do we mean by that? No, I'm not looking for a definition. We've got dictionaries for that. And they're no better at explaining what a conscience is than, I don't know, soupy sales. That's correct. Hey, when it comes to most things, we don't think in terms of definitions. We think in terms of stories. So, uh, what's the story we tell ourselves about conscience? So, uh, what's the story, Richie? Well, a lot of those stories about conscience come from people telling us that we should just shut up and follow the damn thing. You know, like when Yahweh took Abraham aside and told him to follow his wife's advice and get rid of his baby mama. Hagar, the Bond girl, oh! or Bond woman, along with her son, Ishmael. So here's a folksy little meme encompassing all of those stories. A meme that just about every single one of us in the English-speaking world has heard, at least once in our lives. Let your conscience be your guide. Oh, yeah, very nice. Now, you can find this in a well-researched anthropologic tome known as the Dictionary of American Proverbs. Ah. And although the book doesn't give the origin of this perfectly homogenized piece of advice, what it does indicate is that it's a saying heard all across America. And while it's more than plausible that it was originally distilled into English, right out of Western European consciousness. It was only turned into a meme in 1940, via Walt Disney's sugar-laden version of Pinocchio. Have a cupcake! I'll leave a link. God bless you. See, for the majority of us boomers, at least, conscience was that avuncular-seeming Jiminy Cricket with his ostentatious top hat and spats. Crazy little man. So, is that the best and truest representation of conscience we've got? So how should I know? Who even cares? As with all such questions that theologians, philosophers, and uh, Walt Disney have tried to answer, there's plenty more poetry weighing in on the matter. So, uh, let's get back to our Dead Poets podcast poetry slam. And this time, instead of a cricket, 
Conscience is a crab. You kids, get off my lawn! Uh, not that kind of crab. Here's our next contestant. George Crab. Now this George is relatively young. He's only been dead for about 190 years. And the poem he's going to perform for us is called The Struggles of Conscience. And it was first published around 1812, which coincidentally was the year that Hansel and Gretel was first published. Oh, really? Yeah, well, that's pretty much all it is in terms of philology. Just a coincidence. All right, George, take it away. Oh, conscience, conscience, man's most faithful friend, him canst thou comfort, ease, relieve, defend. Well, for those of you keeping score, you realize George was paraphrasing a much older poem from a very famous poet. And tonight, we got a real treat for you. Because as a special guest, we've got that poet. As one of the godfathers of Western poetry, this guy is real poetic royalty. And he's been dead for over 750 years. So let's hear it for the one, the only, Dante. La buona compagnia che l'uom francheggia sotto l'asbergo del sentirsi pura. Sì, 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 sì. 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 Esatto. Sì. Sì. <coughs> but I remained to look upon the throng, and such a thing I saw as I should be afraid to tell of without further proof. If it were not that conscience reassures me, the good companion which, beneath the breastplate of conscious purity, emboldens man. Well, there you have it. George Crabb was basically paraphrasing from Dante's Inferno. So according to both Crabb and Dante, conscience is both a good friend and a medieval bulletproof vest. Something that lets you feel protected and safe if not just a little bit reckless and uh, kind of smug. But that is not all. Exactly. Now, Dante's got another little snippet for us, so uh, let her rip. O tu, hui holpa non hondana. Oh boy, oh boy. See, here's Dante implying the thing that conscience is probably best known for. What's that? Well, it sure isn't grace. So, uh, let me translate for you. Another then who had his neck pierced through, his nose cut off as far as neath his brows, and who had one ear only, having stopped to gaze in wonder with the others there, opened before the rest his throat, whose neck vermilion was on every side, and said, O thou that by thy guilt are not condemned, and whom up in the Latin land I've seen, Unless to great resemblance play me false, call Pierre de Medicina to thy mind. 
That's right. Conscience is probably best known for guilt. 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 Well, we're not going to bring George Crabbe back out here. He and Dante, they uh, wanted to do some bar hopping before they get back to, uh, you know, the uh, the grave. So they've both uh, left us. But Georgie wanted me to read this other poem of his. And I got to tell you, he was being more of a bird than a crustacean. Because once again, he pretty much parrots what Dante had already said. I'm listening. Oh, conscience, conscience, blah, blah, blah. Comfort, ease, defend, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if he will thy friendly checks forego, thou art, oh, woe for me, his deadliest foe. Boo! You suck! Get off the stage! Dude, you guys really are a tough crowd. Well, to paraphrase Georgie's paraphrase of Dante... If you obey conscience, all is well. But woe is you, if you tell it to go to hell. Boo! Boo! Quit it, man! Boo! 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 Alrighty then, uh, we got another contestant tonight, and I would have to say that he's our featured guest. And while he's not going to recite his poetry, he's still going to perform for us. His name is Bill. And he's been dead for just over 400 years. Uh, what's that? Bill isn't here? He sent some actors to read his stuff? Oh, all right. My conscience have a thousand several tongues, and every tongue brings in a several tale, and every tale condemns me for a villain. Perjury! Perjury in the highest degree! Murder! Stern murder in the direst degree! All several sins, all used in each degree, throng to the bar, crying all guilty, guilty! Well, so far we've got conscience being hailed as a good friend, one that can give you a bulletproof vest that'll make you feel pure and blameless, and uh, just like a real BFF, It can prop you up and make you feel a touch smug compared to the rabble. So, uh, what's not to like? Except, of course, then it goes and makes you feel guilty as hell. Which I think is the way most of us tend to know, Conscience. Nonsense! Yeah, well, here's another reading from, uh, that Richard III thing. Where's thy conscience now? Oh, in the Duke of Gloucester's purse. So when he opens his purse, to give us our reward, thy conscience flies out? Tis no matter, let it go. There's few or none will entertain it. What if it come to thee again? I'll not meddle with it. It makes a man coward. A man cannot steal, but it accuses him. A man cannot swear, but it checks him. A man cannot lie with his neighbor's wife, but it detects him. Tis a blushing, shame-faced spirit that mutinies in a man's bosom. It fills a man full of obstacles. I don't think the character in question was talking about constipation. But the conscience can also be a real pain in the ass, I guess. Uh, Ah. 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 
So uh, here's another snippet from Richard III. Conscience is but a word that cowards use, devised at first to keep the strong in awe. Spoken like a true politician. And now we've got a reading from Hamlet, in which uh, Bill pretty much parrots himself. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all. All right. So conscience isn't just a pain in the ass. Conscience is something of a bully, kind of like an enforcer. You know, someone along the lines of Luca Brazzi or Furio Junta. Well, as an encore, we got a reading from Titus Andronicus, a play that's so bloodthirsty and perverse it makes goodfellas seem like a bunch of really nice guys. The lines in question are spoken by a character called Aaron, the boy toy of the wife of the Roman emperor. Thou art religious, and hast a thing within thee called conscience, with twenty popish tricks and ceremonies, which I have seen thee careful to observe. You know, I think this is our winner tonight. Sounds like a pretty straightforward jab at Catholicism. And uh, we're eventually going to see that the sentiment here is pretty consistent with the satiric aims of our fairy tale author. Yet, uh, despite all of this poetic evidence, I still don't think we have any real clarity on this business of conscience. Aw, why? Well, we've got a guest performer here who's got something to say about that. And he's only been dead for, uh, like, eh, let's see. Ah, what do you know? Almost exactly 160 years. So let's hear it for Henry David Thoreau. For most men it appears to me are in a strange uncertainty about it, whether it is of the devil or of God, and have somewhat hastily concluded that it is the chief end of man here to quote, glorify God and enjoy him forever. End quote. Now by it, Thoreau actually meant life itself. Between the lines, he was also talking about conscience, the still small voice, and the end game of eudaimonia, or true fucking happiness. Now I'm also going to read you something from Goethe. Zwei Seelen wohnen ach, in meiner Brust. Die eine will sich von der anderen trennen. Your German pronunciation must be much better. Uh, it's okay. One impulse art thou conscious of, at best. Oh, never seek to know the other. Two souls, alas, reside within my breast, and each withdraws from and repels its brother. Yay! Well, let's face it. 
if wiser heads like those of Thoreau and Goethe say so, it must be the simple human condition to always be a house divided and remain confused over this business of conscience versus the still small voice. Oh, crap. Maybe even especially after those of us who've actually heard the still small voice. We find, to our horror, that it violates the tenets of everything we've come to trust and believe in as conscience. So God help us if we manage to hear and actually follow that still small voice. Because right in that moment, when we step up and decide to follow what happens to be the real McCoy hero's journey, conscience is only too likely to take us for a ride on a hell of a long guilt trip. Hello, Carlo. Uh oh. Part 4 Teil 4 In which we take a little trip on the time machine to read somebody else's mail and end up learning how a typo made an awful lot of people confuse Frau Holzacker with Saint Teresa. I hereby inform you under powers entrusted to me under section 47, paragraph 7 of Council Order number 438476 that Mr. Buttle, residing at 412 North Tower, Shangri-La Towers, has been invited to assist the Ministry of Information with certain inquiries. Well, if we're looking for eudaimonia, or true fucking happiness, it seems pretty clear that a guilt trip with conscience is not the best way to get there. And why not? Well, I'm convinced that for the great majority of us, only the still small voice can do that. The very thing our Holzhacker had been following before he ended up listening to his wife. I'm not saying nothing. We've already heard from Thoreau and Goethe. But we have even better evidence that conscience and the still small voice are two totally separate and different things. Um, yes. You're getting two for the price of one. So, uh, let's take a brief trip on the time machine to read a letter that Vincent van Gogh wrote to his friend Anton van Rappard on Monday, November 21st, 1881. Doors closing. Standing passengers, please do not lean against the doors. Spatial temporal coordinates are currently unknown. Now this might sound a little sappy, at least to begin with. But Vincent, he has a way of saying things that paints a shockingly clear portrait of Herr Holzacker listening to his wife in bed. I ain't got nothing you want. Yeah, you have. You just won't give it to me. <clears throat> let us surrender our souls to our cause, and let us work with our heart 
and love what we love. Love what we love. What an unnecessary warning that seems. And yet how great a raison d'etre. After all, how many people expend their best efforts on something that isn't worthy of their best efforts and treat what they love in a stepmotherly fashion instead of giving themselves openly to the irresistible urging of their heart? And we even think that behavior such as the above, meaning sticking to our duty, shows uh, firmness of character and strength of mind. And we expend our efforts on an unworthy one and neglect our true lass. And all of that with the most sacred of intentions and thinking we must do it from a moral conviction and sense of duty. Thus we have the beam in our own eye, confusing a seemingly or would-be conscience with our real conscience. (laughs) Somebody's reading my thoughts. (laughs) See, I think that's the real crux of the matter. We're all so used to confusing a would-be stepmotherly conscience with our real conscience, by which it's obvious that Vincent meant the still, small voice of his heart. Still, so much confusion wrapped up in a single word. So, uh, why is that? Hey, Jerry, what's the story? Well, I promised earlier that I would explain. Remember? No. So here's the story. Back in episode 10, we learned that Marsilio Ficino translated the Greek word noeros into Latin, and he used the word intellectuali, as opposed to something closer to the idea of intuition. And in doing so, he may have made generations of hair-splitting intellectuals and academics happier than pigs in a, you know... Except he also made it a thousand times more difficult for any naturally intuitive person to discover that they even had an intuition. Not to mention what intuition might actually be. So here, in the case of the word conscience, we've got good old St. Jerome to thank for all the confusion. Remember him from the last episode? No, sir. Sure you do. He was the guy who first wrote those words, Sancta Simplicitas. Words that somebody turned into a meme by copying and pasting them into the story of Jan Hus. See, sometime between the years 405 and 420, Jerome was famously trying to suss out the meaning in a wild and crazy passage from the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. And in that particular case, he was writing about Ezekiel's famous hallucination, or I mean vision, of the fiery chariot and the four faces he saw. Faces that became the icons associated with the four New Testament evangelists. So here's verse 10 of the relevant passage. 
their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being. And on the right side, each had the face of a lion. And on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Now, writing in Latin, Jerome used the amazing Greek word, centurison. Huh? See, this word became catnip for medieval scholastics to ponder, debate, and attempt to resolve when he called centurison the scintillae conscientia, the spark of conscience. What kind of crap is this? See, the Greek word for conscience was synodesis, while synteresis was a very different ball of wax. Pseudo-intellectual bullshit. So Jerome had all those intellectuals jumping around trying to figure out if conscience and synteresin were one and the same thing. Or just a friggin' typo. Oh my god. This is just fucking stupid. Ooh, getting a bit testy, aren't we? Well, by most modern philosophic and theologic accounts, what really stands out is that synteresis is practically the same thing as noeros, which was the word that Ficino had translated into intellectuality. And as I've already said, noeros doesn't mean intellect, certainly not in the way we postmoderns think about that word intellect. For you and me, here and now, and for Proclus, writing in the 5th century B.C., noros means intuition. Ah. And back in Ficino's day, a full two millennia after Proclus, intellectuality probably had some connotations related to intuition. But whatever those connotations might have been, they've all crumbled away from the word intellect. And the story that's ingrained in our postmodern culture concerning intellect has nothing at all to do with intuition. Why not? Well, there are numerous reasons for that. The most fundamental one being that no matter how hard you try, no matter how intellectual you are, you can't put intuition into words. You can only put it into a story, which is, after all, the very reason we have fairy tales. Wow. So I'm here to tell you that intuition, and therefore synderesis, is what I mean by the still, small voice of the heart. And that's why it makes so much sense to see a great distinction between conscience and the still, small voice. The still, small voice is synderesis. It's your intuition. It's not your conscience. That's it. Conscience, or conscientia, is what all the medieval writers and intellectuals meant when speaking about logical, rational, dogmatic reasons for distinguishing between right and wrong. So that's the story, Jerry! That's the story! Oh, no. Hey, this is all more than just a matter of semantics. The word is not the thing. So here is the thing. Conscience is collective. 
It tells you how to be like everyone else. It's what makes you a good member of the collective and the culture. It's what makes you a good follower. The still small voice, or synteresis, that's personal. It tells you how to be your best, unique self. It's what makes you stand out from the crowd. It's what makes you a good leader. Holy shit! <laughs> so, synteresis, or cinderesis, or even Saint Teresa's, if you prefer, is a magical word. There's a rich story within that very word, and it corresponds to exactly what happens to you whenever and wherever you hear, recognize, and follow the still, small voice. Well, I think that we should do that. Now, unfortunately, there are always real difficulties involved. Just being able to hear that still, small voice, that's tough enough. Conscience is usually trying to drown it out. And conscience is the one voice most capable of doing that. And so then, even if you can hear it, identifying the still, small voice, that's a real problem. If you're not tuned into your intuition, it can sound just like noise. Noise that your intellect is only too happy to dismiss as irrelevant. See, not too many of us are taught to identify the still small voice. In fact, we're more often taught to dogmatically disregard, doubt, and overrule it. And then most of us are taught that conscience and servitude to dogma are the very voice of the heart. Fact is, whenever we contemplate choosing to follow the voice of our true calling, we are assailed by conscience and guilt, as well as by doubt. That is, unless we've been parented and brought up in a culture that fosters an attitude of reverence for the voice of our true calling, our own truth. And the sad truth is we have so very few examples of someone successfully identifying and following the voice of the heart. Now a lot sounds like really bullshit. Yeah, sure, we got story upon story of courageous people following the voice of conscience. Still, we all have to ask ourselves at some point in life, how do we distinguish? between the quietly insistent, still small voice of the heart and that nagging voice of upbringing, duty, and conscience that's taken over just about all the space between our ears. What a load of crap. Seriously, what is the difference between our calling, what is calling us to the numinous, and our conscience, which is always and only calling us to follow the rules. I don't know, mate. Oh, I think you already know. I mean, if you ignore your conscience, you can be sure you're going to feel guilty. And if you ignore the voice of your heart, you're not going to feel guilty. You're going to feel something very different. Something even more unpleasant than guilt. Oh, no. Ignore the voice of your heart, and you can be sure you're going to experience real 
heartache, which is exactly what our woodcutter is about to go through. You just ruined everything! Well, in our next episode, we're going to hear from the Grimms themselves. We're going to hear another dead poet who just couldn't make it to this episode's Poetry Slam. And then we're going to go off to one of those dinner theater thingies for a little entertainment and a nice big meal of steak tartare and blood sausage. Now, as an appetizer to that meal, we're going to hear from the Grimms themselves. That is to say, their very particular revision to this part of the story. So let's listen to what they heard the Holzhockers saying to each other in bed. No, wife, said the man, I will not do that. How can I bear to leave my children alone in the forest? The wild animals would soon come and tear them to pieces. Oh, you fool, said she, then we must all four die of hunger. You may as well plane the planks for our coffins. And she left him no peace until he consented. But I feel very sorry for the poor children all the same, said the man. So, I don't know how many of you guys are out there listening to the podcast. What part of silence don't you understand? And uh, maybe you're tired of me whining and pleading with you to please, please, please keep spreading the word. So today, I'm not even going to do that. Oh, wow, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Yes, you're very welcome. Now, just don't forget, you can find full transcripts, including all the voice and music credits for each episode, on the website. Visit us on the web at www.betweenthelines.xyz. Between the lines is all one word. You'll also find extra links within the transcripts, giving you more information related to the European history mentioned in each episode, as well as the dead poets in this episode. Oh my. Alrighty then. Ciao, a chiunque. Or, I guess as Dante would have said, chiunque. This recording will self-destruct in five seconds. Ciao, ciao.